Hi there. Before we start, if you're new to our podcast, thank you for tuning in to our show, and we hope you will stay with us for a very long time. And if you're a regular listener, thank you so much for your continuous support throughout this period of uncertainty. We're really grateful for all of your kind words and encouragement. It has really helped this podcast to grant a great exposure, as our mission is to create perspectives by the people who look like us. And a woman, and also people who are marginalized historically, to the final conversation. So, you haven't already? We encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Omni, Apple, Google, or Spotify, and of course, leave a rating and a review if you like. We also welcome engagement through our Facebook and Instagram platforms. We truly appreciate the support from you to help us to increase the visibility of different perspectives. Enjoy today's show. Hey y'all! This is Jessie. Hi, this is Helen, and we are Asian bitches down under, where it is well and truly springtime here in Sydney.、Um, it is the second week of September,、mm-hmm. and despite the weather, we are angry. Why are we angry, Helen? Oh,、uh, that's gonna be on our on main topic this week、mm-hmm. um, because we watched. Well, I watched the partially some of the panels from the women's safety. Summit, summit, yeah,、mm-hmm. earlier this week, and then came across with the resale seven thirty program on why women are angry. Yes,、uh, yeah, so two but, parts. So yeah, yeah. So there,、oh, there's actually four parts in all. Oh yeah, four parts, but it was divided and, over two nights. Yeah, 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 yeah. and、um, they're on YouTube, so you can access it. So basically, it's a、um, it's part of Lee Sales Seven Thirty Report.、Um, it's a four part sort of. Each of them are around roughly fifteen minutes, which、mm-hmm. I find like really great because it's like digestible. Because you can't watch you know something longer than fifteen minutes when it comes to like the inequality of women. Because as a woman, you just get to、um, Emotionally overwhelmed. Yeah, it's too、um, overwhelmed. Four parts. The first part is called in is on economic inequality. The second part、um, is on unpaid labor. The third part is on、uh, sexual harassment at work, and the third and the final one is domestic violence. And、uh, we will Helen and I will spend the majority of today discussing it. But first of all, let's、mm-hmm. catch up on our week, Helen. What have you been watching, reading? So I'm still reading *Brave New Human* by Sarah Dingles this week. I think I only have fifty pages left, so I'm towards、awesome. the end of the book. And、mm-hmm. every chapter, I keep telling me, "Okay, is there anything more that is gonna be mind blowing?" And it just goes on to be and on more.、Yeah. Uh, I can't even find a word for it. It's just more unbelievable things happen、yeah. in the industry、yeah. of fertility. Do you want to give us an example? Yeah, so if you don't know, Sarah Dingle is a donor-conceived person.、Um, mm. So in the world of fertility, there's a social father who is the one who raised you, and there's a donor father. Typically, donor-conceived person they are genetically born to their mothers, and they're not genetically born to their social fathers because they were they used the artificial insemination. To be conceived, there's of course there's other way around, and there's also people who are conceived through、um, strangers' eggs and spuds.、Mm. Um, so Sarah Dingles, that、uh, she wrote this book. I listen. I think I mentioned earlier on our previous part as well. I, I came across with her book from listening to the Sydney Writers Festival, and I started reading it about two weeks ago. The things—it's just unbelievable. I don't know how to how to even describe the things that she talked about, and she researched, and she went her her journey through、uh, seeking or trying to find the records of her own identity.、Mm, yeah,、mm. it's just oh, I I can't. I, I don't know what what words to use it because I didn't prepare for this <laughs> to talk about it. But let's just give you an example. Is in the、mm. in the fertility world in Australia, it started in like in around nineteen fifties, probably earlier, but it wasn't、mm. properly recognised into in the regulation in the seventies.、Uh, but there's still heaps of loopholes that people、mm. cannot go and seek for their biological parents. If they、mm. don't don't are conceived, so it's、mm. always a mystery to them. It is a heaps of lies and deceptions about their own identity because most of them、mm. don't find out of their how they were conceived.、Uh, for example, Sarah she didn't find out that she was donor conceived until she was twenty seven. So there's、mm. a layer of I guess shame 
for the parents that they don't want their donor conceived yeah. child to know that I have this inability to reproduce, mm. I guess. Mm. Um, mm. And it's more, um, it comes back to like gender stereotype as well. Men are always being perceived that your sexual gratification could be the way through reproduction. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. if you can't produce, if you can't reproduce, say we all know that the, um, it's probably becoming a bit more normalized now that mm. um, men who doesn't have enough sperm count or their quality of sperm is not good enough. You shouldn't be feeling ashamed about it because there's ways mm. that you, if you want kids, that is. There's a, there's a medical intervention, okay? Mm. But mm. I think with medical intervention, there should be a proper regulations about it and transparency. I think mm. that's a word, as in transparency and telling your kids that if you're con- if they conceive through donor sperm or donor eggs, that they should know as early as possible. Mm. But uh, what happened was that during the 80, uh, 80s and even 70s, that a lot of people does not know well into their yeah. adulthood that they were they yeah, were not yeah. donor conceived and mm. it uh, furthered a lot of problems saying for example that if there was a woman who had bowel cancer and she found out she was donor conceived and she needs to track down the genetic issues mm. for you know perhaps her half siblings out there she, mm. she doesn't exactly. know you know this yeah. preventative but because of the lack of records or missing records that she doesn't have mm. for her biological father who happens to have the genetic issue right, of bowel right, cancer yeah. as well. She died mm. very young. She was like early 30s and she died. Mm. Yeah, and there was problems, mis- uh, not misconception, sorry. Uh, there was deceptions by fertility doctors. There were women who were inseminated by the their fertility doctors' sperm. Doctors, yeah, yeah they didn't that, know yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a whole very chaotic. It's horrifying. Mess. Yeah, it's so horrifying. It's so horrifying. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. maybe there was a there was a quote in the book that mm. uh, kind of appear a similar concept of the novel that we mentioned earlier this year, Breast and Eggs. Is that yeah. we really need to think nowadays that having kids is it a privilege or a right? Because mm. it comes down yeah. to the desire of people who want to have kids, but they do they go out of their way to the point that you think that it's just so unethical for the kids who have been produced because they right, have yeah. no idea about their own backgrounds or their mm. biological, you know, what, uh, the history of their actual family, their biological yeah. family, yeah. Yeah, and like what, just hopping on the back of what you said, Helen, mm-hmm. um, it reminds me very precisely of this one very searing scene from Breast and Eggs mm-hmm. um, towards the end of the book where like the character, the main character goes to um, a sort of gathering of parents who are interested in artificial insemination mm-hmm. or they're, they're going to watch someone who has been artificially, like a child of artificial insemination talk publicly about his experience and one of the do you remember the scene and one of the um one of the participants at the end of the session raises her hand and says something very bluntly mm-hmm. like um the parents who who are seeking donors conception are the most selfish people in the yes. world because it's all yeah, about them yes that's it's right. all about them yeah but then the narrator and then i remember hearing that and thinking oh my god that's so true it's all it about is. like what you want as an mm-hmm. adult and then and then the narrator hops on the back of that and thinks but isn't that what all parenthood is it's yeah, all about regardless, the parent. like, regardless regardless of how you how you have the kids yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, yeah and i, I was just like very, oh, my mind yeah, was just blowing. blown yeah <laughs> yeah i think we really have to shift around and look at how our society is now i mean i don't regret having kids okay and i don't think people who have the choice to have kids needs mm. to go down the path and make the rethink again but i just want to emphasize that having kids is definitely a privilege mm. yeah i think for me is having kids are a privilege because i i know that there are a lot of people who are trying to have kids who can't have kids or yeah yeah miscarriage you know all all kind of yeah. scenarios in your uh human life could encounter mm. and when I was reading this book I kept thinking that I don't understand well I kind of understand how the society has always been framed to present the narrative that when you have a family it means that you have to have a have children or at least a child yeah, yeah. yeah. and 
if you don't have it, you're kind of like dysfunctional, which is yeah. not true. I think we really have to yeah. shift the perception about what is the meaning of life. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean, what constitutes as a, a fulfilling life? That's basically. right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to really recommend everyone to go out and get her book. Her writing yeah. is so precise and concise and very coherent, and all the stories that you read, it will honestly. Make you rethink about the meaning of life and the damages already created in this world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness, that's just like that. There is no higher praise than that, mm. Helen. I'll make sure I tell Sarah myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good book. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, on the concept of the meaning of life and what is a good life, I've been reading a local author. I really barely ever read anything like parochial, as in like mm. uh, close to home. But I have picked up Kavita Bedford's Friends and Dark Shapes. And mm-hmm. she, I believe, is like, um, I met her at the Sydney Writers Festival. She was super nice. And she lives in the inner west. And her book, which came out roughly the same time as mine, is really about like this woman living in a share house in Redfern. Mm. And like, I, that is just me, totally. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so like, <laughs> I was just, I, I, I'm not saying that I saw myself in her book, but her book is really um, sort of, um, it's about a girl like her. Um, I don't know if her, this is like how autobiographical it is, but it's about a woman who's like living with a bunch of friends in the, um, Redfern. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to overcome the grief of losing her father from a mm. year ago. And um, so far the book really talks about like, um, the sort of in- interaction she has with her housemates and her okay. friends. It made me think so much of what I love most about um, being, like, I don't know if this will ever change. And I feel as though it at the moment, because I'm in my 30s and I don't have urge to have children, but it feels like it's such a precise time in your life, in your 20s. Most people, I think, I don't know, most people I feel like um, sort of separate into... Um, situations where they're only living with one partner or they mm-hmm. um, end up having a family, right? Yeah. But her book is about, like, a group of friends who are in their late 20s who are still trying to figure stuff out. Um, and, you know, the conversations they have is so enriching mm-hmm. and it made me kind of just feel so warm about my own goal in life, which is to live in a sort of commune where I'm surrounded by artists and writers and thinkers and all we do every day is just like cook for each other and um, talk about books and talk about ideas. Yes. Like that's seriously my dream and it and it made me think like that's part of the reason why I feel so isolated here in Sydney because I don't, I just still haven't found that kind of commune, that community mm-hmm. and, um, and part of the appeal of New York is, you know, I know that Someone had said, maybe it was Garth Greenwell had said that Yan- Hannah Yanagara, the famous writer of um, A Little Life, she is like in her 40s now and all of her friends are unmarried, all of her friends are child free, mm-hmm. all of them are artists and they live in this kind of world where the norm is actually to be of that situation and the abnormality is to be in a nucleus heteronormative family <laughs> and I was just like I see myself like that yeah, so much that's you. Yeah. yeah I know and if it scares me so much how much I don't want the heteronormative family unit mm-hmm. because like um that would basically mean that I will never feel really I would feel like I never belong in Sydney because I still haven't mm-hmm. found that kind of situation that circumstance is it similar to Secret Life of Us? Yeah, Secret Life of Us, which I've stopped watching. No, I'm not for any reason. It's just like it's so long. It's like six seasons and, and every episode is like an hour. That's a bit too long for me. But it is kind of like Secret Life of Us, just kind of um, more intellectual debates, I think. I think that the, the people in Secret Life are quite heteronormative. Like mm, all of them yeah, are quite... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was back um, in the 90s, so yeah, it's and not very all, diverse. They all end up having kids, I think, or mm-hmm. like getting married or something like that. Yeah, um, I, I believe, you know, for, for centuries now, there are people and communities that have that where, where the lives of people who are who don't have, you know, the typical family is the norm. It's just like still quite um, on the edges of society and it's like much harder to find. Yeah, I think there are still ra- relatively minority of the society. That's what I said earlier, that we really need to shift our perspective and think about how we should reframe our society in a different way rather than just produce kids and continue our life because now Mm. humans have evolved to a civilized world that 
many of us, I guess they they asked you. I'm 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 speaking from a very privileged position, of course.、Mm. That many of us don't really need to worry too much about without government help. That you don't have a roof above you, you don't have food、mm. on the table. I guess majority of people has it. Of course, I'm speaking from my the privileged position again.、Um, so we really need to kind of move above and beyond and think about not to just. Program our thinking to go through the path as what our parents or grandparents had. Growing up, have an education,、mm. work your、mm. guts out, <laughs> and then、yeah. uh, pump our kids. Uh, yeah, yeah, there are more things that we can do, more things we can discover, more things we can create, and yeah. Mm, yeah, precisely. Food for thought. Um,、uh, regarding my cultural consumption, I have finally taken the plunge and subscribed <laughs> to Binge、mm-hmm. uh, for like a free two week、uh, session. Um, I've only um watched the White Lotus, and, and it's the only、yes. reason <laughs> I have signed up, and I'm going to de-sign myself at the end of two weeks because <laughs> there's nothing on Binge worth watching. Sorry, that's like pretty. I I never go out publicly to say don't do something, but. I already have subscribed to Stan and Netflix. I think that's enough for me.、Mm-hmm. But Binge does have some good shows. What does it have? Oh well. Anyway, I'll just jump to、um, what、White、what、Lotus. my purpose was to, to to mentioning the White Lotus. <laughs> Everyone is talking about the White Lotus. Like honestly, ten of my friends have told me to watch it, and I was disappointed, perhaps because of the heightened anticipation that you know inevitably、mm. comes from recommendations. I just never take recommendations seriously anymore.、Um, I always get in- disappointed.、Um, but basically, it's like a story. It's a six-part. The first season is six episodes. The episodes are around just under an hour each.、Mm-hmm. When I saw that, I immediately was like, "Oh God, kill me!" It's so long. <laughs> Too long. Yeah,、um, yeah but、um, well, the premise is very, very simple. We have a group of white wealthy people,、um, different. Sort of such circumstances go to a island resort on in Hawaii, a very rich island resort called、um, the White Lotus.、Um, so here are the main characters: the heteronormative family,、uh, who like the mother is a CEO, kind of like Gwyneth Paltrow ish,、mm-hmm. tech CEO, and、um, she brings her son, teenage son, her teenage daughter, and the teenage daughter and the teenage daughter's best friend, who is black.、Mm-hmm. And then the other major character is a newlywed couple on their honeymoon. Shane and Rachel, who were had the most compelling storyline, I think, at、mm. least relatable to me.、Um, and then there is、um, the、uh, a single woman、um, played by Jennifer Coolidge, who's like the best. Like I would watch anything she stars in, and she's mourning.、Uh, she's kind of she's carrying the ashes of her mother, so she's mourning、mm. the grief. She's grieving,、mm-hmm. and then、um, other、uh, other main characters include、um, the hotel staff. So、mm-hmm. there's the main character. I'd say the one of the main hotel staffs is obviously the the head sort of.、Um, he's a gay dude who's kind of like the front desk concierge、mm-hmm. kind of guy、mm-hmm. who has to make everyone happy. And then Belinda, who runs the spa, she's、mm-hmm. a black woman, and.、Um, Basically, through six episodes, we see the unfolding of each of their lives. So we see、um, the newlywed couple,、um, Rachel's、um, situation, seeing how like she realizes it's a mistake that she married this guy because he's basically a C U N T in every way. And I also found him, his character Shane, super triggering because he reminded me exactly of an ex partner. Oh yeah,、um, yeah. It was horrifying to watch. Like he flirts with these two. Girls, teenage girls, like in front of his new wife. Fucking asshole! Like who the fuck does that? It's disgusting.、Yeah. And、um, I felt like Jennifer Coolidge's story was the saddest. Obviously,、um, a lot of a bunch of stuff happens with her. She kind of manipulates Belinda, who is like I realized. You know how a few weeks ago we were talking about POC therapists、yes. to white people. Yeah. So Belinda is a perfect epitome of this. She's sort of carrying that emotional burden. Oh my god! For、gosh. Jennifer Coolidge's character, it's so typical. How writers do that, fuck. And、out. and also, yeah. And、um, I realize、uh, actually, Helen, that the real power in Hollywood is never really rests on the actors. It's actually on the writers, because、mm-hmm, the the character who play, the actor who plays Belinda in the show, she's like 
an immensely talented actor, but the part written for her is excruciatingly shallow and superficial. Like, she's not able to show her full range mm-hmm. of her skills because of the way in which her character was written. Yeah. So it just made me think, like, really, we need to change the writers, not necessarily the actors. Like, you can have a, a sort of a massive upheaval of sort of um, an increase of black actors, but it doesn't matter until we change our writers and our writers who give these black actors really great, substantial, meaty, hu- humane um, characters to play. Yes. And then I guess the the most number of seconds placed attention placed on the show was around the normative family mm-hmm. and like the jealousy between the two teenage girls like one the brown woman hooks up with a like a local Hawaiian dude who mm-hmm. works at the hotel um the sort of crippling relationship between um the CEO wife and the husband and then the like the oh, I swear the teenage son his storyline is just like completely arbitrary He's just, I just do not understand why he's in the show. Seriously, he's, he's, his he storyline is there. absolutely fucking useless. Yeah, I just have to say that. It's so boring. I actually skipped every time I saw that. He appears. He, he came, yeah, I just fucking skipped that. He's such a dull, uh, he's so dull. I, I, I really feel like um, it's just another show where it's like hyped up because it's like apparently satire against white people um, but I don't think satire works when it comes to whiteness I no. just think like the level of attention I've been having a lot of debates about this with people and some people disagree uh-huh. with me and it's like an ongoing thought obviously um, but at the moment I just I don't really I'm not convinced that satire works when it comes to pointing the finger at white whiteness and white people and mm-hmm. and and I read this great um a few op-eds where they do sort of people of color criticize the show and ultimately say yes. it it's still out, at the end of the season we're still forced to comprehend and empathize with the humanity of white rich white people you know I and so there's a big spoiler <laughs> at the end I won't say it but it just yeah it was just like oh god no it just it does it didn't work for me yeah it really mm. didn't work for me and and can I just also say the music was fucking irritating like some parts Helen I even muted because I always oh. watch everything on captions with captions yeah, yeah. um I even muted I muted the whole sh- when I was watching the episodes because like the music was like tribal and um sort of Hawaiian music mm-hmm. but like tribal kind of beats and um drums yeah yeah that fucking irritated me because it just sounded it seemed so like cliche I know why it was like that when I used that why they use that soundtrack because, because they're in Hawaii location. right yeah. but it still felt mildly insulting to me. And I don't, mm-hmm. I still can't really verbalize why. I can't articulate why, but I felt very uncomfortable when, like, there was this kind of tribal, ancestral, sort of nativism kind of music in the background where over the top of, like, really rich white people's problems. Yeah. I just found that, ugh, yeah, mildly a, insulting. Yeah. When you text me earlier this week saying that if anyone wants to watch White Lotus with you, mm. and I remember seeing from a foreign, it was a POC forum. And someone had said that, oh, whoever mm. recommend me to watch White Lotus, White Lotus, uh, fuck off, you know, such a shit show <laughs> or something yeah, like that. I love um, that, yeah. It's just, like you say, it's just an, a, another white, wealthy family talking about their problems and it's really hard to sympathise with them. Not saying that I don't acknowledge their problems. Um, mm. I reply your text saying that, is it like the other show where there's Nicole Kidman, it's called Nice Strangers or something like that. It's um, got uh, Melissa nine, yeah, McCarthy yeah. in it. Yes, yeah, a new show um, based it on, on Amazon Leanne or Moriarty's. Yeah. yeah, so it's about Nine another, Perfect Strangers. Yeah, Nine yeah. Perfect Strangers. It was about, yeah. about a bunch of wealthy... Mostly white White people, people who yeah. goes on to a retreat and try retreat, to... Re- yeah. Finding redemptions about their own faults or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I really want to see that show because I love Big Little Lies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but yeah, I have to say, Helen, because you have also read Flashman's Flashman is in trouble, right? Yes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and you know how I feel about the book. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that um, watching White Lotus crystallized something for me very, very unexpectedly. Okay. So I realized that um, after watching White Lotus, I had this sort of mild, muted depression for a few hours afterwards. And mm. I realized it was actually the same kind of depression I felt after reading Flashman, Flashman. is in Trouble. Um, and I realized it was two things. One, I by being in the shoes of white people and 
seeing their problems, right, um, made me realize that even if you're white and beautiful, um, you won't have the, you won't necessarily have a perfect life. No. So mm-hmm. that was depressing, right, in itself. But then the second part is what really, the second part of my depression was really something new. I realized that that is exactly, exactly how white supremacy works. They're it trying wants to you, make you feel it, like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. It wants you to, to prioritize the humanity of white people. Yes. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this is, I, I'm falling for it. I'm fucking mm-hmm. falling for it. Mm-hmm. And and so, like, it made me think, yeah, um, I just, I just, uh, yeah. That's why they're popular. Just, that's why yeah. they're on the front of New York Times. They're on yes, the, I know. They're on your because, front, front page of Netflix. Yeah. Because they appear right there and everyone follows it. And then and they appeal to that it. white mass audience, that white mass yeah. audience who wants to pretend to feel like they are uh, woke and that they are apologetic they're about not. their whiteness. <laughs> but, um, but no, they're not. The, yeah, mm-hmm. it, at the end of the day... Um, like places like the New York Times, like it's kind of the same feeling I get when you know I wrote a massive rant about Sally Rooney and the people. <laughs> I think I think actually after a few weeks now I've been thinking about it. I think what I really despise are the people who love Sally Rooney. If you love Sally Rooney's books, it means like to me the message you're sending me is that you relate to the characters and mm. that you feel something for them and that you feel seen. And if you feel seen through the story of basic white person white people <laughs> who are feel sorry for themselves because of like minute sort of trauma my sort of minute sadnesses that they go through in their lives um that means to me it shows me the sort of extent of your unwillingness to unwillingness to do what i i can't i don't know just your sort of unwillingness i guess it's to expand your own horizon to see other people's or, or issues. like to to me i feel like the people who love sally rooney must find sally rooney's books comforting and mm-hmm. if you feel that kind of world comforting it means that you're okay you're like you want to be live in a world where everyone is white and beautiful mm-hmm. and like have eating disorders and like sleep around and ask yeah there's something deeply like for me i think it i think it's more the reaction and the or the followers of her story or the people who fall in love with her mm-hmm other people who I am a bit uncomfortable hanging around with mm. because they're like, they love, they, they, it means to me that they embrace a world in which Sally Rooney's characters live in, a world where they don't have to ever meet a black person with mm-hmm. a disability, mm-hmm. a world where they never have to form any kind of humane relationship with someone who is not white and privileged like them. Mm-hmm. And that hurts. Like the, to me that um, hurts me because I'm not white and because I'm not, someone who will ever enter that world because of my face and you know because of my ethnicity and my race yeah that's 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 kind of like the sort of revelation i've made this week after watching white lotus i get what you're saying and i totally understand and i totally agree with you i think i can't to be honest i have encountered people even who people who are not white okay they're like second or third generation asians immigrants in australia and all they read is very whitewashed novels and books. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just can't have a conversation with that. I mean, it's ever since that we start doing the podcast that we kind of want to bring out the voices of uh, black indigenous people of color, especially women and diverse and very intersectional voices from, you know, LGBTQI. And we talk about all these issues there and, what we've read, like we spoke last uh, podcast as well, we hardly picked up a book that's written by white male anymore. Um, mm. So the books that we are reading are very, tends to be more diverse mm. and tends to be issues that are not very seen by the mainstream. And mm. if, like you said, if the people who are actually just still reading the mainstream, very white type of literacy, I can I can assure you that for me, it's the same. I, I don't feel like I can talk to them as well because they are on the position that they're very privileged, not saying that we're not, but they just haven't expanded their own horizon, I guess. Mm. yeah. I don't feel like they, they would be sympathetic to talk about issues of domestic violence or issues about refugees, issues about yeah. 
gender inequality, etc. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the thing that hurts the most. The mm-hmm. fact that um, I don't mind sympathizing with a say like the character of Rachel in White Lotus. Um, she, I don't like completely. I sympathize with her. You know, she's in a she's newly married to a guy who's completely controlling, who doesn't want her to have a career, who basically wants her to be a trophy wife. What really hurts is that um, the attention and the seeking of us to feel their humanity is never, never symmetrical. Like, yes. I, I don't think any white person has ever watched a show about a Taiwanese person, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, I want to fucking insist on that. Like, call me selfish, call me self-centered, egotistical. I don't give the shit. Like, if I have spent 30 years of my life looking at and being inside the shoes of white people, I think I can demand that white people should look at stories about Asian people, should look stories about mm-hmm. black trans people, should look at stories about disabled, someone disabled from Nepal, some from ne- Nepal or the Dominican Republic, you know, like... We should demand that, and mm-hmm. regardless of who we are, like yes. that is, that is the kind of world where, like, I want to live in, where like everyone's story is propped up to the same degree and the same kind of celebration and ardor that white people like, or people who benefit from a systemic structure of like privileging certain types of status of people. Just really briefly, I was reading the New York uh, the New Yorker this morning. Helen, I did not know that I had a subscription to the New Yorker. I just like I had no idea. So like this whole year, yeah. This whole year I I I just didn't know that I had a subscription. And this morning I woke up to an email from the New Yorker saying that my subscription Yeah, is being renewed in December. I was like, fuck I'm like so many articles I've actually like not been able to read and because like I thought I didn't have a subscription but anyway I started reading and I found out that um Tao Lin the author of Taipei which is like apparently quite you know famous um it is quite famous I shouldn't say that it's apparently quite famous um the sort of literary left in New York and America love him and he's Taiwanese like Helen like his parents were Taiwanese he was born in Virginia T-A-O T-A-O and then and then his Just surname Lee. is Lin. Oh, yeah. yeah like our, American my novelist. Yeah. yeah. So he um, went to NYU. He was like, I have to say off the cuff, he's very good looking. Yeah. So he has pretty privilege. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> he's very handsome, especially for like, an... no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> so Taolin, um, the, the piece I wrote, I read on The New Yorker is by one of the best writers out there, Adrian Long Chu, who is a trans, who is a trans writer and like a fucking genius. And they profile Tao Lin um, regarding Tao Lin's new book, Leaving Society. And mm-hmm. it's like on off the back, Tao Lin is famous for sort of autobiographical fiction, autofiction. Mm-hmm. Basically, he like uses everything that happens in his life and makes it into like fictionalizes it. I'm using yeah. air quotes into his books. And like I read a little bit into Tao Lin and like he just basically sounds like a C-U-N-T. Um, he like has taken his ex wife's like emails and like published it in her in his books in the past without her uh, Ooh, permission. Okay. He like his ex wife had come out to say that he was like abusive, and like sexually assaulted her in their marriage. Um, in the latest book, he writes a story about hooking up with and having a relationship with this Japanese editor, and then mm-hmm. that can be correlated to his real life. Like he seems to be one of those left wing dudes who like all seems like all like woke and feminist, but they're actually just like misogynistic incels. I'm not saying so that he's like woke fishing everyone. Incel. I don't know, but like <laughs> honestly, I just I feel a bit like I, I shrivel. Be- mm. And thinking about Taolin because he's Taiwanese and I'm all mm. for Taiwanese representation. But this guy just yeah. sounds like a fucking prick. He just, yeah. And like he kind of had a little argument with Emily Gould. You know Emily Gould who we kind of love to hate yeah. but also love to yes. love? She's the woman who yeah. wrote that uh, ho- like horrifyingly searing yeah. Yeah, essay about shame. And she, I personally love Emily Gould. Don't, not a fan of her husband who wrote that like <laughs> egotistical self-mourning piece about how his son doesn't love soccer. Parenthood, yeah. Um, oh my God, kill me. Keith Gesson, I think his name is. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, she had like a little spat with Tao Lin when they were in, when she was, when Gorka was a thing. So Gorka closed down a few years ago where actually Emily Gould wrote that, um, let me just find it, the exact quote. She wrote that um, Tao Lin maybe perhaps the single most irritating person we've ever had to deal with. 
um, and then do you know what Tao Lin did in response? He retaliated by, this is according to Wiki, he retaliated by completely covering the front door of the Gorka office building with stickers bearing Britney Spears' name. Like, who the fuck does that? He sounds oh like such God. a prankster. Kind of reminds me of David Dobrik, who's like the biggest jackass in you know, like human history. Mm. Um, I'm like tearing people down today. Wow. Um, I yeah, I I I feel a bit uncomfortable, sort of openly talking about Taolin in this way because he is Taiwanese and I want to support all Taiwanese people, but oh, not when they're like yeah, freaking do that pricks that yeah. seem to be what Tao and what really like infuriates me, Helen, is that like a platform like the New Yorker. Um, who I think I really should stop kind of idolizing. <laughs> I really should stop idolizing the New Yorker. Um, they're all like white liberals, whatever. Um, that he like that he gets a profile done on him and his book. That's because he's very adjacently yeah. close to whiteness. Whiteness. Yeah. That's and, always and NYU what happens. people. Yeah. yeah, like you look at happens. every single Ivy writer. Lee yeah, Ivy League. Uh, yeah, Ivy League educated with, I guess. Perhaps that he's got certain networking towards like boys club, and that yeah, he's, yeah. he's had the path to yeah, and like be published. I've been listening. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying um, that I'm dissing his work and all that. No, no, no. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. finish Taipei. Like I, I was so <laughs> excited about reading it because it's like yay, uh, like it's like my si- my home country's uh-huh. main like capital city. I couldn't wait to dig into it, but I honestly couldn't finish it because it was just like him going around New York like mourning the fact that he's girlfriend won't give him a blowjob or some oh shit God, like that and like dr- drug-induced benders oh mm-hmm. he just so feels like such a self sort of self artistic Narciss- in- yeah he- <laughs> exactly <laughs> i can't even finish exactly i have to say find it rare to meet a man in the literary world who is not narcissistic honestly yes. Yeah. Honestly, I I can say that flatly. I can mm-hmm. say that with full like I and and go go ahead and criticize me, but it's very hard. Like it, it seems to be more of the minority if you are a straight male and you are not egotistic in the literary world. But that's what, something that, about that's, that's a character they needed to make themselves popular. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. <sighs> It's so tiring as well. Yeah. Why the hell are we talking about? <laughs> well, I also okay. just like um, what mostly angers me, Helen, is my own sort of adulation of places like the LRB and the New Yorker. Um, like mm. all these people who write for them have been institutionalized in the, the colleges of like, like you said, Ivy League colleges mm-hmm. in America and in, you know, what Anglophone um countries i was listening to an academic this week who said basically places like harvard are imperialistic oh damn of course you know like yeah and i I was like then why am i praising people who go like at the back of the book when i read the bio of someone it'll inevitably say like oh they went to yale they went to harvard Mm -hmm. they you know went to iowa they went to princeton and I, it's always like a marker or a status. Mm-hmm. And I no longer want that to be something that I find, ooh, like I don't want to react like, ooh, they, they must be smart. It's a kind of automatic sort of reaction that I want to sort of kill, destroy mm-hmm. in my in my mind. Like yeah. I love like, for instance, Gia Tolentino, I, I think she is a genius. She went to a UVA, like a University of Virginia. I love Amia Shrivis Vanson, who um, writes for the LRB and, you know, is the author of the collection of essays I'm fucking obsessed with, mm-hmm. The Right to Sex. She was Oxford trained. You know, she was also, she, I think she taught, teaches at Yale sometimes. You know, like, it's hard to disentangle all these kind of ideas that we have that these people who graduate from these places are smarter than us and are people we should follow. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Maybe, Maybe not, not, of course. As we can see from Never Have You Ever, you can get into Stanford by swimming very well. <laughs> exactly, and being hot. Yeah, being, being hot. hot. So there's yeah. the privileges there for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have to say, uh, um, I have been really obsessed with this idea of pretty privilege and the politics of desire this week. Mm-hmm. And I've been I've ordered Deshaun Harris's book, In the Belly of the Beast, and Deshaun Harris is a trans black writer. And um, he is a black, fat, and trans advocate. They're like amazing. Oh, I want to read that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, um, for people who 
like this is I hardly ever listen to other podcasts, but one of the best podcasts ever is one recommended to me from my dear friend who's the smartest person in the world, Sue Lin, mm-hmm. S L Lim. Um, and they told me to listen to the podcast called Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you want really searing kind of like radical discussions, uh, discussions mm. of, of politics and sex, um, go to listen to that. It's wow. just I'll check them but, out. But I have to say, Helen, um. Be warned, um, I had to listen to the episodes about three or four times before I actually understood what they were saying. Oh, my goodness. Because, okay. yeah, because it's quite um, thick and deep uh-huh. and dense. And and they're also, like, two-hour-long oh, podcasts. So, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, you need to invest your time. But it's, like, totally worth it. Nice. Okay, let's take a break, and we'll be back to talk about the... Why, why women, women are, are angry. angry. <laughs> yes. We'll be right back. So we're back, and the first episode of Why Women Are Angry focuses on uh, economic inequality, mm-hmm. which I I have to say I appreciate it because it's like such an unsexy topic. Mm-hmm. And the best thing about this episode was when they did this kind of um, clear animation of Jack and Jill kind of like being... Oh, yes. Um, having a water kind of bottle yes. on their back. It kind of shows how throughout life because of the way in which society has pay gap exists and, and, you know, Jill having, taking time off to have kids and all that, she ends up at the end of the, at the end of her life, um, Jack and Jill end up with like an immensely different sum in their superannuation. Mm -hmm. And I also found the, the woman who they interviewed, like she was like a white woman in her sixties, I think, who was like... The first um, story that we see. Yeah. The first story that we see, she has married, she was married for 35 years and then her husband left her. And then so she could no longer afford, like, rent on her own with her um, job mm-hmm. after she retired. And it was just so fucking depressing, Helen. I just thought I'd never want to get married just because I never want to put myself in a situation where my husband might leave me after 35 mm-hmm. years. Like, it's mm-hmm. so horrifying, that reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did you think about that? Oh, the first story? Yeah, I was. Mm. I thought it was really sad because she ended up, end up in a very rather, like, nice subsidising housing um, but the story that she was telling, she had work. She had, she's a midwife. She's not yeah. like she didn't get out of workforce. She had work, and yeah. she continued to work until that she retired. And unfortunately, yeah. that she was faced with a divorce in I say was it when she was in fifties? Yeah, in her late fifties. Yeah, 50s. in her late fifties. And then they she sell her family home and realized that she couldn't afford anything yeah. to purchase yeah. for herself. Um, yeah. we're actually seeing the part that we're actually like reflecting from her story. We're actually seeing the story that's probably a bit relatively well and well established because she had work right. firstly, and yeah. she had assets before that she got married. Uh, before she yeah. got divorced, mm-hmm. so she was able to sell off and perhaps have some assets afterwards. But there are a lot of women out there who are married and with. A lot of issues in their marriage. They say maybe domestic violence, which we'll probably talk about a bit later, and no income as well. And mm. we are seeing the rate, the rise of homelessness in women, specifically for the age group fifty and plus. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of women are facing divorce. Perhaps they just couldn't put up with their fucking shit husbands anymore. Yeah. Uh, after they have their kids, and I'm seeing this, um, I'm seeing this trend quite often in Taiwan as well. Once the kids mm. have turned like eighteen or they're mature enough, the the female, the wife, the mother feels like, oh yeah, I've given up so much of my time, sacrifice to look after this family. Mm. I've had enough. Now it's time to, for me to actually, do what I want. You know, that's yeah, one yeah. of the that's one of the reasons that people get divorced as well because they just don't want to be constrained in the marriage anymore and they don't feel like they're they can kind of head on their journey with their current partner. Yeah. 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 I guess the savings or the assets that they have for women is not as equal for the man to for them to continue to live by themselves, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds it's 
the way in which they packed a lot into the 15 minutes was really, really useful to mm-hmm. see. I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second story, the second part, um, is the title Unpaid Labor. And they start the show starts with a lesbian couple who have two kids. Mm-hmm. They're white. And um, one of them's a nurse, I think, and one of them's a disability support worker, I think. Child care worker. Um, child care, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they talk about how um, because they're both, like, none of, both of them are women, they are able to kind of be more equal in their division of mm-hmm. labour in the household. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and then it goes on to talk about how in traditional, so, sorry, not in traditional, in um, heteronormative relationships where the man and the woman um, are married um, mm-hmm. and have kids, the, the woman, you know, takes up something like 70, 60% of the domestic duties and mm-hmm. COVID and, and, the fact, and the fact that COVID Adds on has burden. exacerbated yeah. all of these things. Yeah. Um, how, how did you feel about this episode, Hell? Um, I thought it was great. Um, I particularly like the way that how they frame around unpaid labour and actually put numbers on it for mm-hmm. everyone to see, to actually recognise that many women out there, even with full-time job, they're doing extraordinarily more amount of time. Yeah. They're spending a lot more time than their partner, who is working, who is probably working full-time as well, to mm-hmm. care about their family. And we're not just talking about physical domestic chores, we're talking about mental loads as well. I think he kind of briefly talked about it on the episode, that women are constantly yeah. having those thoughts in their mind, like... Yeah. What kids like what food, the preferences yeah. of individual um, yeah, exactly. eating habits, kids' schedules, um, yeah. birthday parties, where, yeah. when do you have to send exactly. gifts? Uh, oh, Mother's gifts, Day is yeah. coming up, you have to do yeah. this. I'd say 99% of women in Australia do that, honestly. Yeah, and like Lee Sales had that one moment when she was like, maybe it was when she was, um, yeah, when she was doing the interview, friend, Annabelle yeah. Crabb. She was like, oh, um, you have to kind of remember when the kid's friend comes over that they're allergic to peanut butter. Yes. Like, uh-huh. I don't think yeah. one fucking father would ever take <laughs> on that role, you know? They would just you know? say, like, oh, this is, like, so not my job kind of thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, and I have to say, all those little things adds up. And that's why... Definitely, like, yeah. Historically, we've had more books published by men or more movies made by men because um, mm-hmm. they don't have to deal with all that fucking shit. Yeah. Or the invisible work of raising a family, you know? That's right. And yet they still carry the status of being a fucking father. Fuck, I hate fathers. <laughs> I know, I hate Just that. kidding. Except, except um, my own. <laughs> that's why that um, Yumi Stein, a little while ago, I think it was a couple of years ago, that she wrote a mm. piece, or she, she made an announcement or a Twitter or something like that, that she mm. stopped doing Christmas parties and but kids' birthday parties. Mm. She just gave up of doing those things as a woman as a mother yeah yeah she tells yeah she just lets her her husband or partner do it now yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. such a huge mental load and yeah. for our listeners out there if you're in a cis relationship or if you you have friends in cis relationship or your relatives your siblings are in cis relationship just mm. try to look for this um just try Trend. to just yeah, just look behavior. for this behavior okay who sends you the cards? Who sends yeah. you the presents? Who signs who the cards? Who texts you? you? Who, who texts you? you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's never the male partner. Yeah, I have to say. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm like. Within my, uh, I mean, well, I mean, without yeah, family. With, I even know. myself. I see that in myself. <laughs> like in my relationships, I'm always the conjoiner. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, from my own family that I know that it's usually the female relatives remembers my kids' birthday parties. It's the, always right, the yeah. female relatives who sent yeah. us the cards. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so exactly. think exactly. about it. Who who takes up the <laughs> mental load? Yeah. yeah. There was one I thing. Say, the, sorry. There was yeah, one thing that going, I, I really I really love uh, during this episode because so they interview a couple of experts. You know, like CEOs yeah. from different councils or uh, equality yes, yes. institutions. I absolutely love uh, Min Long from yeah, Ming Diversity Long, Council. She said yeah. that. At times, I just want to clone myself <laughs> so I yeah. can actually get shits down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just like, oh my God, that's just a mind-blowing statement. Because in the past, um, when my husband was asking, oh, what do you want to, what do you want to out from our relationship? Because we had this massive argument of not um, dividing the workload properly. Mm-hmm. And I say, I'm hoping that you can be cloned so you can go and do multiple things. But mm. in fact, that what Min Long said is that women need to clone ourselves to get yeah. the shit done 
or otherwise yeah. we still have to explain things to individual male clones to yeah, <laughs> do yeah. those things. I was picking up a book by um, the Shameless Girls. Um, I forget what their name is. Um, but there's two white women from um, Melbourne. The Shameless, you know, podcast. Shameless podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they wrote a book about being in their 20s. And <laughs> one of the chapters was like, this is an example of emotion, like um, burden, emotional burden that we have to take on for like a man. <laughs> and then one of the first example was when she was like, example one, when your boyfriend turns to you with um, two minute pouch of rice in front of him and asks you, how long should this go in the microwave for? Oh my God. I was like, oh my God, really? <laughs> then like, I've like, yeah, that, I didn't realize that was emotional labor. Like, but yeah, it is kind of, you know, it like is. being asked questions in which they can themselves find the answers to, you know? Oh, is it just like simple life skills that didn't learn yeah, when you exactly. were growing up? I Fucking know. hell. Yeah. I hate that. I think a lot of men, I have to say, I'm not sure. I wish that like all Australian men listen to our podcast because then they can answer for us. But like mm-hmm. Australian straight men, I wonder how many of them actually know how to cook by the time they leave home. I feel mm. like most men go from their household in their um, having their mothers cook for them to like mm. maybe shared house when they survived one or two years um, living off like instant noodles maybe and take out pizza. And during that time, they probably have a girlfriend Mm-hmm. And the girlfriend cooks, and then like, and then they migrate to the family unit where the girlfriend becomes the wife, wife. who does all the cooking. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I just think like, do straight men know how to like? Most straight men probably rely on their wives to cook. I'm not sure. Like, I would like to have people come out, come at me, and tell me, tell me about their relationship. But it feels like um, most straight men still rely on female partners to cook. Mm-hmm. Just to sort of wrap up the conversation about the second episode on unpaid labor, I actually cried. During this episode, and I'll tell you exactly where I cried. It was the moment when, and I don't even know why I get emotional Mm. thinking about this. It was the. (laughs) Are you going to cry again? I'm going to cry. Yeah, it's because I I actually just saw the episode Uh an hour ago, and I don't even know why I'm like getting upset talking about it. So I'm just going to like step away from the camera (laughs) so Helen doesn't see me cry. But it's that part when um. It's that part when Lee Sales talks mm. about how the majority of people who care for elder people oh, yeah. still force towards women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> know why you cry as well. I don't. I have no idea yeah. why it's so upsetting. But it's there, like, was, was, there was there yeah, was an interview. Uh, I think it was a Indian or Tamil uh, woman yeah, yeah. who was in uh, Tasmania no, uh, who's caring. Oh, Nepalese. Sorry, Nepal, sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, Nepalese uh, woman who's caring for her parents, her grandmother, and also her younger sisters her as young well. Sister, yeah. Um, she, her, her income, her work is actually a disability carer already, and she returns yeah. home that she needs to care for her elderly and also her younger sisters. That was quite, I don't know, like for you it's a bit triggering, I can understand, because we grew up seeing most of the caring work done by female relatives, yeah, which totally. is absolutely unfair. And when I was watching that part, I kept thinking, oh, okay, maybe because her parents only have her and her younger sister, the two daughters. That's mm. why it relies on her. But towards the end of her story, this woman, I think her name was Debaki, she said that, oh, yeah, it's kind of comes down to me because I'm the woman in the household. My brother doesn't do this. I'm like, what mm. the fuck? You have a brother or brothers yeah. Yeah. that they don't take care of their parents yeah. and it relies mm. solely on this lady. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's mind blowing for me. Absolutely mind blowing for me. And she's saying yeah. that how she doesn't have social life because yeah. of she her, doesn't the demands. She yeah. doesn't have any friends. The demand yeah. that she has for her work and also for her family. And she's yeah. worried because her grandmother and parents doesn't speak English so she has to be there for them yeah. all the time yeah oh they for me that was physical just... yeah they have a lot of yeah. um health health ailments that she, mm-hmm. they need to like take her to the doctors and all that I think um I, I really don't know why I cried I get really emotional when mm. when I talk about this when I think about I think the part of the reason could be because it's very upsetting um because all these women are invisible that's, that's right. what really hurts, hurts. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I just feel like totally lacerates my heart. Like, all, there's so, like, and I know you know this hell because mm-hmm. you are in the space that I am in 
there's just so many like women who are just not recognized for doing all this work yeah and they're never remembered and their stories are not told you know that's what really like oh god yeah this is why it's so fucked up in the capitalism world because every everything down comes down to the measurement of money, but we never yeah. have the measurement on unpaid labor. Yeah. Can you just imagine that everyone who does caring work just fucking go on strike for yeah. two hours? Yeah. The world we will go into like super <laughs> chaos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I said before, we started recording this morning. Um, I am quite frightened by how strong my conviction is in not having children. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, after watching these episodes, it made me kind of... A, it was a bit soothing mm-hmm. to know that I w- will not face all these hardships because I'm, I'm not going to become... A uh, mother. At least a mother. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God. I mean, I'm still ambivalent about motherhood, but um, <laughs> says the person who just said she's pretty convinced about not having mother, <laughs> being a mother. Um, but I'm 90% sure I don't want them. And um, mm. so it was a bit soothing to know that it, like I won't join the ranks of invisible women. Mm. Not that, you know, because once you become a mother, you're invisible. I mean, there's so many examples of women who, who still have a life of their own and are still in the public eye and are still moving and shaking the society once they have children. But I just feel because of the situation I'm in and because I'm not Sheryl Sandberg rich mm. that I can't, I won't be able to afford childcare or a nanny. You know, I will have mm. to inevitably be, be at home caring for the child, you know. Okay, yeah. so let's, let's move, move on, on to, to the... Another the, bright, sunny topic, sexual harassment at work. <laughs> the private sunny <laughs> One, yeah. It's just, just on and on. See, guys, see how great it is to be a woman? <laughs> okay, so, so the this, What story part, do we see here? The third mm. part of this program is about workplace sexual harassment, the continuous and prevalent of work sexual harassment, uh, even sexual violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse. Sorry, the episode started with an epic story that was prior to hashtag Me Too. It was about mm. the David Jones's uh, incident, the 25-year-old yes. Christy Fraser Kirk. It was about she had been attacked. Her, uh, sorry, she has been harassed by was it the CEO? I can't. I I don't tend yeah. to remember the perpetrator's position or the name. Yeah, anyway. and he had thin lips. Yeah, and he was like, uh, she was harassed twice, but she reported to her company, and they it wasn't resolved, and so she took it up onto the courts, and she was asking for the compensation of thirty seven million dollars. Uh, apparently, it was settled out of the court. I didn't really read up uh, the news, but I remember this this news because it was such a big uh, thing on yeah, the media, I too. and yeah. she was pretty much trialed by the media because of the number of. The, the amount of the compensation she was asking for. Yeah. Mm. So it was horrifically discrediting uh, Christy Fraser-Kirk, talking about that she's a gold digger asking for $37 yeah. million. Dollars. Yeah. Um, pretty much just victim blaming because this was 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What do you think yeah, of that? Yeah, I, I found um, this one so kind of debilitating to watch also. But on the back of my mind, I, I kept thinking about all the invisible women mm-hmm. who cannot be yes. the face... And, and who cannot go on camera to do what Chrissy did yeah. because they're not white, That's because right. they're not privileged, mm-hmm. because their um, immigration status is not will, – will put her in peril if she, um, you know, goes to yeah. – Every time I see kind of a woman, uh, like someone go to the carceral system basically to seek justice, I just keep thinking um, you're one of – you can do that because I just keep thinking all the sort of rape survivors that we see in the media are all white women Mm -hmm. and usually blonde and I'm Mm -hmm. like why is that Uh, one of the uh, interviewees of this series in this part um, she was uh, I think she Indian I forget her name Um, but she was interviewed and she said we have to question ourselves if like all of the people we see sort of speaking up and advocating about um, about sexual violence um, are all one type you Mm -hmm. know like straight white women who are weirdly or mostly blonde they fit this kind of palatable category mm-hmm. of like oh the victim That's but like right. i just think like most women most of the people in the world are this is i'm quoting amia savru shrivinasan right mm-hmm. now she says in her book um most of the people in the world are poor most of the most of the poor people in the world are women and most women in the world are poor Mm-hmm. And like all those women without immigration status, without like um, a financial stability, all those things, they can't go and approach the police. They can't seek justice through the carceral system. And they, yeah, it just it just made me think about the limits of 
I guess like what's next? Like yes, it's I I believe that more women should come out and tell their stories, but but like okay, now what? Kind of thing. That that that's my next question. Now what? Yeah. Like and also Amia talks about this brilliantly in her book. I don't want a feminism that only props up the one percent of women, of course, who are like mm-hmm. white and blonde, like and privileged. I want a feminism that prop that actually props up every single woman. And mm-hmm. and then it's like that eighty percent, ninety percent chunk down the bottom who are like poor, living who in poverty, actually needs who, the help immediately. Yeah, who, who can't who can't get that help yeah. from the carceral system. Yeah. And so what what do they do? What do they do? That's the more important question, right? Yeah. I think you were talking about Dr. Emma Fulu. She's the I think she's Oh yes. Yeah. That Fulu, she, yeah. Fulu. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. it. She's the woman who said you know, said that we need, we need to, to really open up and see why of course she's not dismissing the white woman no. who's coming out to no, no, speak no. about yeah. the experience. But we need to look at the bigger pictures of migrant woman, indigenous woman yeah, exactly. who have the voice, but they are stopped being speaking out because po- possibly the intergenerational traumas about reaching to the justice system, they don't trust the justice systems, yeah, or yeah. they just don't have the place or the space isn't given to them to talk about their yeah, experience. Absolutely, they're not humanized in the same way, the, you know, the inadequate. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and I have to say, this like ties in well with um, the last episode, part four, which is on domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, the last, I believe the last question at the end of the episode, um, the last question that Lee Sales asked was actually like a question that I kind of scoffed at because it was just like obvious. She mm-hmm. asked her why um, Indigenous women and women of colour were not being represented in the media as rape victims in the way that, say, Brittany Higgins or Grace, Grace Hain was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, it's because it's um, racism. Because, Definitely. you know, um, people yep. don't give a shit about um, First Nations women. Like, mm-hmm. people, like, just, uh, like, their humanity is not respected in the way that an average white woman is. Mm-hmm. And that's just, like... Obvious, I think. So I don't know why Lee Sales asked that. Um, I guess, you know, the platform of 7.30 is quite for a pretty general audience. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's racism. It's, and, Definitely. And I don't, I don't believe in carceral feminism. I, don't, I think that carceral feminism, which is basically a feminism that seeks justice and gender um, justice and equality through um, the courts, the police, mm-hmm. things like that. I don't yeah. think that works because it only harms people who don't have, who are not like people who look like, Grace Tame, Bree Lee, mm-hmm. you know, Brittany Higgins, you know. Yeah. yeah. I think also the vulnerability is definitely higher with a, in, a combined combination of intersectionality. Like, for example, like you said, Indigenous backgrounds, trans, um, lesbians, yeah, exactly. yeah. they face people. all sorts of discriminations. Yeah, yeah. Because people don't think that they will encounter those things or because they haven't been... There, there isn't... In, there's inadequate response to their issues that's it okay and also there's not enough media coverages about it we can tell we can understand we can see why that is because the space is taken up by a lot of white people okay that's one thing Mm, mm. and people have definitely a biased perception or also victim blaming i think it was uh something that was uh discussed or presented in the show that people of women of color have always been burdened with certain stereotypical say like angry black woman or this yeah, yeah. nasty woman that mm. uh, a huge perception on victim blaming and they they're not seen as the um, victims of yeah. humanized victims so yeah. it's they're just not humanized that's basically yeah. it yeah and and i think that is kind of like it's such harmful. A, it's such a harmful yeah thing. it's yeah. kind of drawing a whole circle towards the fr- beginning of our conversation today on our pod um i'm kind of drawing a circle back to my point about white lotus mm-hmm. and then like the humanization yes. of white people it's the same thing like we still only kind of feel for white people we still are encouraged mm-hmm. to step inside their shoes and like they get to have complex emotional deep psychologically complex lives whereas like um how many white people have watched stories where it's like um a whole you know, six-hour series of a transgender Aboriginal person, mm-hmm. for instance, you mm-hmm. know? So what do you take away from woman, 
why women are angry. Oh, I forgot to mention at the beginning yeah. of our episode, I was going to read out what my daughter said <laughs> when she was. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. So your daughter's <laughs> eight, and why do you? What what does she say in terms of yeah. why women are angry? So we were starting to watch an episode, and she saw the title "Why Women Are Angry." So I asked her the question. She said, "This is what she said." Um, because we are not treated as a, as same as men. This has been going on for centuries. Look at the Middle Age. Women were treated as maidens, and they were not allowed to be knights, and were not told self defense. There were unfair policy back then. And look at today, the fairy tales. For example, Disney princesses. They're so passive, and I know that most kids growing up listening to those stories, and that's not the fairness in our life. <laughs> so this is coming up from the eight year old. Wait, are you serious? How toxic does she already know? Yeah, she, she. How does your daughter know the word passive? Oh, she just said that. Oh, it's just passive. You know, we just girls are in those stories. They just sit there and waiting for the prince to save them. It's pathetic. Oh my gosh! <laughs> wow, amazing. she's already known how toxic this society is to woman to female. Yeah. May she never stop being angry. That's why you yeah. were angry. Yeah. I think it comes down to power again. I I'm never yeah. never going to leave that word, um, uh, for the statement or the baseline of patriarchy. It comes down to power. Yeah, it's counted yeah. down and to who power. Controls it. Yeah, and who controls it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone should go watch and see it. Honestly, it'll take you like uh, under an hour an to hour, go yeah. through all four of them. It's so yeah. good. Watch it with your. It's kids. like forty-five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so great. Mm-hmm. Kudos to Lee Sales. Definitely, yeah. And the people at seven thirty. Yeah, and what I love about this, uh, the seven thirty, this pro- the this two, sorry, these two parts, the program is that they actually interview. They've gone gone beyond and interview more people than just uh the white yeah definitely. majority. So yeah, we're seeing yeah. a lot of well, we're seeing migrants and we're seeing indigenous people, transgender people, to, yeah, trans talk yeah. about the experience, which is really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, before we go, uh, I want to do a quick shout out to uh, two collaborations that we're still doing. Butter butter, the yeah. active way. Are you still you know, doing actually, Helen. Yeah. Um, I was actually working out in my butter butter <laughs> while I was watching the Lee Sales. Oh, okay. Why women? Because yeah. like I just couldn't sit passively while watching something like that was emotionally taxing. I yeah, just needed to like work out, so I was around. lifting weights while I was watching the show. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So if you're still struggling to find a perfect active wear for your workout, uh, look no further, but but and use our discount code ABDU10 at the checkout. And also Omnis, uh, the special code that you can use is yeah, new. For delicious food. And sorry, is the discount code is N E W ten off for the first time purchase of ten percent off. Uh, Taiwanese food, Taiwanese guys, food. delivered yeah. straight to your door. Get some Taiwanese food to combine it with the opening of Thailand International Film Festival in Australia next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to start on the 16th of September so a per, there's some there's a couple of film p- packages you can go and just check out their website to, to select which one that is more suitable to you and yeah. you can go into a draw to win prizes I think I've just looked up in earlier this week yeah pretty yeah. sweet guys yeah. Sorry. So as usual, the film festival showcasing the brilliant Chinese movies and also documentaries, as well as supporting new upcoming filmmakers through short film competition. And I know that Jess, you've just watched one documentary earlier this week. Yes. Did you write about I it? I did. Yeah. It's called Unfilled, um, Unfulfilled, Unfulfilled Dreams. Dreams. Unfulfilled yeah. Dreams, yes. It's about um, a Taiwanese writer who searches, goes through her dad's stuff. He's a famous Taiwanese <laughs> writer. How do you? Stuff. <laughs> Go through her dad's old letters. Yeah, it's really good. Mm, I totally yeah, recommend it, guys. Uh, that's the end of our episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple. Remember to give us a five star rating, and we welcome our listeners to send us your feedbacks or any topics you would like us to explore. Check out the updates on our socials and make sure you share with your friends to help us to extend the visibility of Asian bitches down under and continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry. So that's it this Woo-hoo. week. We'll talk to you next week and stay safe, everyone. Yeah, and if you're in Sydney this weekend, uh, go out and enjoy the sun if you can because it'll be a hot one. Okay, guys, bye. Bye.
Bye.